Today, we discuss the assassination of Iran's top nuclear scientist, China's calls for the destruction of the United States, and we take a deep dive on all things related to the current standing of the presidential election. All of this and more on another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert. All right, friends, welcome back to another episode of Refining Politics and Culture, where we explore what it looks like together to have vitally important political, cultural, and faith conversations, all with the ultimate goal of exuding truth and love, conviction, and grace in our discourse. Happy Tuesday. I hope and pray you all have had a fantastic Thanksgiving weekend. I pray that it was rejuvenating and refreshing and some nice time off with the people that you love the most, celebrating all that we have to be thankful for, even amidst a crazy 2020. Now we are getting back into it. We're back into the week, paying attention to what's going on around us so we best know how we can play a part in turning the world around us in the political, cultural, and faith realms in the church to look more like the kingdom of God. And I'm excited to do that with you today. So let's jump in. We have a lot that I want to get to. Today will be a very full episode. We're going to talk a little bit about foreign policy, major updates out of the Middle East this weekend. We're going to talk a bit about the media, going to talk a bit about the election and where the different allegations of fraud stand, the different litigation that's present and pending. So let's jump into it. First, what I want to talk about is out of Iran, and this took place on Friday. This is the Times of Israel reporting. Head of Iran's nuclear weapons program is assassinated near Tehran. Mohsen Fakhrizadeh's car bombed and shot at. Advisor to the uh, Ayatollah blames Zionists and vows to descend like lightning on killers. Scientists had been called the father of the Iranian bomb. So the scientist said by Israel and the United States to head Iran's rogue nuclear weapons program was assassinated Friday in an ambush near the capital Tehran, Iran's defense ministry said. The ministry confirmed the death of Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, a professor of physics and an officer in the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, after it was widely reported in Iranian media. Several top Iranian officials indicated they believed Israel was behind the killing in the hours after the attack, with one advisor to the Islamic Republic's supreme leader vowing revenge. Israel had no comment on the attack, and Israeli TV reports late Friday said the IDF had uh, not been placed on a heightened alert in its wake. IDF is the Israeli Defense Force, by the way, so that's the military. Anytime you hear IDF. Another key word to notice here is the Mossad. The Mossad is essentially Israel's intelligence service. It's like Israeli CIA. The assassination happened in Absard, a village just east of the capital that is a retreat for the Iranian elite. Iranian state television said an old truck with explosives hidden under a load of wood blew up near a sedan carrying Fakhrizadeh. As the scientist sedan stopped, at least five gunmen emerged and raked the car with rapid fire, the semi-official Taz Neem news agency said. Israeli TV reports on the incident Friday night said the gunmen emerged in two separate groups, some on motorbikes, and fatally wounded uh, the scientist and shot dead three of his bodyguards before escaping. He was then evacuated by helicopter and died at a hospital after doctors and paramedics couldn't revive him. So, long story short, Iran's top scientist in the nuclear department, the person who is the most responsible for developing nuclear uh, weaponry for the Iranian regime was killed. Now, we do not know the full details. There's conflicting stories. Uh, we do not know for sure that it was Israel that committed this uh, assassination, but it would make sense that it's someone who's obviously an enemy of Iran that desires for Iran not to hold nuclear weapons. So whether that's the United States or Israel or Saudi Arabia or whoever it might be in the region that strongly desire, and it even could be a rebel group within Iran, by the way, that's also a strong possibility. But whoever ultimately committed this assassination and however this actually played out, we can disagree on the timing geopolitically. We can disagree upon whether or not it was worth it right now. And we can talk about all that. We can have disagreements on it. I think one thing we should objectively be able to all agree upon is that it is a good thing that this man is no longer on the earth. 
Now, I know that that can be a very triggering statement in our very hyper-grace culture. We don't like to think about these things because these ethical questions make us uncomfortable. And I know that this is a deeper philosophical, theological, ethical conversation for another time. But I am of the persuasion that it is a good thing that this man is stripped of his capacity to enact his demonic agenda across the earth. Death to Israel and death to America were this man's guiding principles. And the Iranian regime as a whole and people like him, Qasem Soleimani, just back in January, they were very good friends. They had very similar ideology regarding the demise of Western values, regarding the destruction of the state of Israel. So, of course, I wish this man years ago would have repented, turned from his wicked ways, accepted the love and grace of Jesus Christ, but he didn't. Instead, he made it very clear that his agenda was explicitly anti-Christ. His, ex- his agenda was explicitly against uh, the the very things that God desires and his his plans would have explicitly led to the destruction of those who God has called us to protect and so I do I pray that he I pray that in his final moments of life he had this moment where he came to know Jesus and all we can do is trust the Lord with those moments I don't know what happened in those final seconds and in his final breaths I, I have no idea but I can tell you this as as weird and bittersweet as these moments are for us as Christians where we have to say, yeah, you know what? Uh, we don't desire that anyone would perish, but that all would accept eternal life. People are going to make their own decisions. And there are moments in life, like with Hitler, like with Pol Pot, Stalin, Mao, uh, whoever these different tyrannical leaders have been throughout history, it is a better thing that they are stripped of their ability and their capacity to enact terror on the world around them. This is a man who had a great deal of ability to enact a lot of destruction on the world around him. And it is a good thing that he has stripped of the ability to do that. So again, bigger conversation for another time. And we can disagree about the strategy. And we still don't even know what really happened. And we don't really know who did it at the end of the day. So there's a lot that we still just need answers on before we can make very concrete statements about the political ramifications and all this. But what I really want to focus on, because like I just told you, I think it's a good thing that this man, this terrorist, essentially, is stripped of his ability to continue acting in the capacity that he was. Not every other institution agrees with that premise. In fact, uh, we have American media outlets that rush to this man's defense or rush to sympathize with the Iranian regime, believe it or not. And I want to point out the most notable example of this from the weekend. So this is the New York Times tweeting. And I'm just quoting you directly from their tweet. Iranian officials who have always maintained that their nuclear ambitions are for peaceful purposes, not weapons, expressed fury and vowed revenge over the assassination, calling it an act of terrorism and warmongering. That's a real tweet from the New York Times. Guys, this is one of the largest media institutions in the world, an American media institution. It was the New York Times world that reported, but it's still the New York Times, an American media institution, tweeting this, sympathizing with Iran believing their propaganda that they meant their nuclear program for peaceful purposes, which is crazy. So I want to read this again. I want to go slow. Iranian officials who have always maintained that their nuclear ambitions are for peaceful purposes. No, they're not. Not even close. The Ayatollah just a few years ago said that if it's within his power and his capabilities and his abilities, he will make sure that Israel is no longer a country in 25 years. There was a top Iranian general that just two years ago said that he would love to nuke Israel into oblivion. We know that death to America and death to Israel are two very guiding principles within the Iranian regime. They do not desire peace. Giving them the ability to make nuclear weapons with any sort of blessing or concessions is an awful idea. But let me keep going. Expressed fury and vowed revenge over the assassination, calling it an act of terrorism and warmongering. So a lot of people uh, jumped in to say, okay, this is crazy. Like New York Times, you've gone way too far here. Lisa Booth, another journalist, said, is this an Iranian paper? She's absolutely right on this. Essentially, New York Times is acting a lot more like a state-sponsored Iranian media outlet than any sort of objective uh, media entity. 
Uh, Michelle Exner said, ah, yes, the peaceful nuclear weapons program in the world's most active state sponsor of terrorism. Why wouldn't we believe the Iranians in the New York Times on what's peaceful and what isn't? Ariel Davidson said, absolutely delusional. Uh, Derek Hunter said, the new Mullah Times, ladies and gentlemen, just again alluding to the fact that they're acting a lot more like a state-sponsored media outlet by Iran than any sort of objective outlet. Rick Grinnell with the Trump administration tweeted, New York Times once again ignores U.S. intelligence agencies' warnings and props up a murderous gay-killing regime. Alex Plitas uh, Plitzas, excuse me, said two weeks ago, the IAEA declared Iran's enriched uranium stockpile was over 12 times the legal limit. So guys, you don't build nuclear facilities deep under mountains with 90 degree entrances meant to defeat cruise missiles when they're for peaceful purposes. It's a total mistake to believe anything the Iranian regime says, especially when they're vowing for peace with their weapons of mass destruction or with their energy that's required to create weapons of mass destruction. And the Obama administration made a grave mistake by reaching out a hand and trying to make a deal with these terrorists and offer concessions and offer a blessing and sending $1.7 billion in a pallet of cash to the Iranian regime. The Obama administration cozied up far too close to the Iranian regime. And Biden has promised if he's inaugurated, he'll do exactly the same. He has promised that he will reinstate the Iranian nuclear deal. Now, this assassination makes that a lot tougher, which is why I go back again and say that this assassination was likely carried out by a party that strongly desires for Iran to be stripped of its ability to... A, reinstate this Iranian nuclear deal in the event that Biden's actually elected, and then B, to actually achieve the nuclear weaponry that they desire. But ultimately, I'm just blown away that this is where we're at with the media in the United States. And this is not the first time that this has happened. We know that over the last year, the New York Times has uh, repeatedly taken China's side time and time again. We know that last year, the Washington Post called Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who was the head of the Islamic State that the Trump administration took out, assassinated him. Uh, the Washington Post sympathized with this guy, called him an austere religious scholar. Truly remarkable, guys. And this is why Khrushchev, the communist leader uh, back in the Soviet Union, said that if America was ever going to be destroyed, it'd be from the inside. Therefore, we will destroy America without ever firing a single shot. This is why all of our, our enemies have recognized that an attack on the U.S. homeland, an invasion of the U.S. homeland is not really a possibility. If you want to take out the United States, you have to sow dissension within the United States. You have to get Americans to turn on each other. This is why we've discovered over the last year that China invests hundreds of thousands of dollars in our media. This is why China sends educators over to our institutions, our educational institutions in the United States, to teach our young people to hate American values. And the media is not helping. They are hurting the, uh, they are hurting the fabric of the United States. They are hurting our ability to maintain peace within the country. They are dividing us far more than any politician by siding with our enemies time and time again, moments where Americans should rise up and actually join together and be able to believe in a common cause. Instead, the media is trying to sow dissension within the ranks, and it's truly remarkable. And I'm not saying that every single reporter at the Washington Post, the New York Times, or CNN feels this way. What I am saying is that you can judge a tree by its fruit. And the fruit of the media over the last few years has been extremely sour. It's been very dangerous. The media are the false prophets of our time. And we need to pray against them. They continue to sow misinformation, to lead Americans astray, and to get them to turn on their neighbors. And it's, it's, it's not acceptable. I pray against it often. So I'm going to leave the Iran topic there. Also, I'm praying for peace in the region because the Iranians have vowed retaliation, presumably against Israel, given that that's who they believe committed this assassination. So certainly praying for peace, certainly praying for protection over Israel. Now what I want to do is switch gears and tell you guys about a concerning new report out of China. This is the Daily Wire reporting about something that took place in China last month. And I want to read you this report. A Chinese sociologist recently delivered remarks at a forum reportedly in Shenzhen where he declared that it was only a matter of time before China overtakes the United States and effectively puts an end to it. The remarks from Dr. Li Yi were reported by Memory TV, a research organization that normally tracks Islamic extremism around the world and anti-Semitism. 
So this is what they said. Chinese sociologist Dr. Li Yi said in an October 16, 2020 speech delivered at the Shenzhen One Dialogue Forum in Shenzhen, China, that China would overtake the United States in GDP by 2027 and that COVID-19 has been harmful to the U.S. and Europe, but beneficial to China and North Korea, memory reported. Dr. Yi holds a Ph.D. in sociology from the University of Illinois, an American university. That makes all of this just even more troublesome. And according to his LinkedIn account, he's a full-time professor at Renmin University in China. Following Dr. Yi's October 16th speech, Renmin University issued a statement denying his employment at the university. So I'm going to read you some of the most inflammatory quotes from his actual speech. His speech was in Mandarin, translated into English, and it was translated into English by multiple sources that all did confirm that this is indeed what he said. I also have my own voice translator app on my phone that I'm subscribed to, and I also ran this video through that translator, and it also confirmed these quotes. Just wanted to let you know that before I start rattling these off here. First is this. It turns out that China is going to overtake the United States in 2027. It was said that this might be delayed for a year or two, but this year, God has pulled off a little trick, right? God created COVID-19 and spread it to every country in the world. So not only is that deeply troubling, it's also completely mocking the Western value system because we do believe generally in a God. Um, Obviously, we believe in Jesus Christ. I do believe in Jesus Christ. China loves to mock that. And China's an atheistic country. So even them saying this is not only incredibly troublesome, but it's also just very mocking and condescending. COVID-19 is bad for Europe and America, but it is beneficial for North Korea and China. We still have 4,000 dead, right? But if 4,000 Chinese die versus 220,000 in the United States, we haven't really lost a single person, have we? We're close to zero infections and zero deaths. If 4,000 people out of 1.4 billion die, that's the same as no one getting sick and no one dying, which... Of course, those numbers are very disputed. No one actually in their right mind believes that China only lost 4,000 people. This is just their tendency to uh, influence everything with propaganda. In the global economy, China stands out. We are ahead of schedule in terms of overtaking the United States. There will be no problem reaching this goal in 2027. The U.S. will not survive. As long as 1.4 billion people... Chinese people eat, sleep, defecate, and urinate every day. As long as we go to work every day, we will drive the U.S. to its death. So clearly very warm and fuzzy comments coming out of China last month. Um, But (laughs) this only reiterates the message, guys, that China is not to be ignored. And I so badly wish Americans would have understood on November 3rd when they went to the voting booths the true threat that China poses. And tens of millions of Americans voted for a guy, and we do not know that he won yet. This election is not over. It's not over till it's over. But let's say Biden ends up being president. Millions of Americans would have voted for a man who has explicitly said, even within the last three years, that the rise of China is not a bad thing. He said, what? China's going to eat our lunch? Come on, man. They're not bad folks, folks. It was his, that was Biden's exact quote about the rise of China. So you've got a globalist that uh, potentially could be president now and has had a track record of selling us out to China. And judging by his policy proposals heading into his potential first term, he plans on doing just that again. Like I mentioned, Obama, or excuse me, Biden is a return to Obama. And Obama explicitly enabled the Chinese regime to continue to expand their power over not only the region, but also the world. And who is Obama's specific liaison to China? It was the vice president, Joe Biden. So I'll leave that there. Make sure that you subscribe to my weekly show notes that I send out in an email at my website, refiningpoliticsandculture.com. Enter your email, and then you'll have to confirm your email. And then once you do that, you'll receive an email each week with a Dropbox link that has basically a database of all my different show notes and citations and outlines and uh, sources that I use for these episodes. And I'll actually include in there a video of this sociologist speaking at this forum so you can watch it for yourself. I now want to give a quick coronavirus update because there has been a new development on the 
Donald Trump White House Coronavirus Task Force, Dr. Scott Atlas, the very notable expert in many different fields, but especially public health policy, who I had the incredible honor, actually, of interviewing on the show back in the summer. So if you haven't had the opportunity to listen to, to that interview, actually, you can watch it as well on YouTube or on my website, Refining Politics and Culture. That was back from early July. If you had not had the opportunity yet to go and check that interview out, I highly recommend doing that. So much of what we talked about is very pertinent still today, just about the damaging effects of the COVID-19 lockdowns and how our society has deeply failed. Our government officials have deeply failed at analyzing uh, the current crisis through a cost-benefit analysis actually making sure that they're weighting their decisions against the potential side effects of their decisions uh, in order to ensure that the cure is not worse than the problem itself. But instead, our governors have completely neglected that advice. Well, Dr. Scott Atlas is has now left the coronavirus task force. He has resigned. Now, the media completely botched the story. And I know it probably sounds like I'm giving the media a hard time today. Again, I do that not because I think that they're bad people. I just, I really have a problem in our country, that you have to search so far and wide to find the truth about what's happening, not a uh, narrative-spun version of it in order to accomplish a certain political agenda. And that's exactly what's happening today in our media. Our mainstream media that's claiming objectivity is doing the very opposite, and then they act more like activists than journalists. And this was just another example for that. And the only reason, the only way that they get better is if we call out the rotten fruit in order that the tree would go stronger. The tree is not going to heal or grow stronger unless Americans are willing to step up and say, guys, we cannot keep eating this rotten fruit anymore. you got to give us the truth. You're sowing division amongst Americans. You're turning us against each other. We don't even know if we're getting the truth anymore because all of you are more concerned with proving a political point than actually reporting the truth. Well, that's exactly what happened with Dr. Atlas's announcement. Here's how NBC reported this. They said, controversial White House coronavirus advisor Scott Atlas to resign. Atlas, who has no infectious disease background, has spread misinformation about the virus and downplayed its seriousness. That was their headline. Here's the reality of what took place. Well, actually, let me keep going. Then they include a very sad-looking picture of Dr. Atlas. He looks kind of depressed-looking, looking off into the abyss, sort of with a frown on his face. And it looks like this very just defeated image. And that's really the message that they want to convey. They want to convey everything related to the Trump administration is awful. Everything he touches turns to destruction. And look at Scott Atlas and this failed attempt to uh, heal the coronavirus season and lead to productive results. Here's what actually took place. Because I had a lot of people even reaching out to me last night saying, wait, what happened? Like, was there some issue? Because that's certainly what reports like this made it seem. CNN did this too. New York Times did this too. ABC did this too. Everybody did this. This is how they reported this story besides a few independent journalist institutions. Here's what actually happened. Atlas was uh, on a 30-day detail, or excuse me, a 130-day detail that was set to expire this week. So it's not like Atlas's employment with the White House task force was just indefinite. He's known all along that his work term was 130 days. It's set to expire this week, so the formal way to go out it is by resigning, effective December 1st today. So he announced his resignation letter yesterday. It was a very wonderful resignation letter. It was respectful. He loved working for the Trump administration, talked about the good work that they did together, and the truth he spoke for Americans and believed in the message that he was preaching and uh, talked a lot about the research that had guided their uh, their response to the coronavirus and his thoughts on schools. And it was, I mean, his his message all along has been very consistent. He has not flip-flop like Dr. F Dr. Fauci has. He's been very consistent. He re released this resignation letter and December 1st today marks his resignation date at the end of his 130-day detail. The media doesn't tell you that. They want to make it sound like this was out of the blue, that this was unexpected, that there was a problem, and therefore it led to this last-minute resignation. This literally, could, the truth could not be more opposite than that. It could not be farther from what the media reported. So 
I just wanted to clear the air on that because, again, I had people actually ask me and concerned about what happened to Dr. Atlas. They knew that I had interviewed him a few months ago. It was a really successful 130-day term. And I am I am so uh, honored that I had the opportunity to meet with him. And I respect so much the work he's done for our country. And I especially respect the way in which he has fought for schools to remain open, that he has fought for common sense in this season, that he has actually been one of the few medical experts Though he's not an infectious disease expert, I've said all along, what we need in this season is not an infectious disease expert. We need a public health policy expert, someone that understands the holistic health crisis that we're currently facing, because for the first few months, it made sense to have an infectious disease expert leading the charge until we then understood as much as we do related to the virus. Then it makes sense to bring in a public health expert who can actually advise on the holistic health crisis that we're facing overall. That was certainly Dr. Atlas. And he rose to the occasion. He served our country well. And so I wanted to clear the air on his resignation. This is actually a very normal uh, respectable, honorable thing. And I uh, am impressed by the way in which he fought for truth in this season amidst a culture that really did not want to hear it. So I'll leave that there. For the remainder of our time together, I want to talk about the election. I want to dive into the litigation that's currently pending before the courts in some of these swing states, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Nevada, Wisconsin, and Georgia. I want to talk about uh, some of the allegations that are pending before these different state legislatures, where we're at in the process, what comes next, what the Trump campaign could be thinking at this point, what their goals must be. So I'm about to go over some of the different litigation that's currently pending in some of these states, as well as some of the allegations that are before state legislatures in some of these different hearings, like in Arizona yesterday, like in Pennsylvania last week. But before I do that, I want to give a bit of a preface, and I'll reiterate this a few times, but it will take three Hail Marys in order for Trump to actually come back and win this thing. The chances of Trump coming back and winning this thing are incredibly slim. That being said, the chances are still certainly there. The chances are not zero. There are still constitutional processes that could result in a Trump win, though they are diminishing as the days go on. So we're getting into the 11th hour here. We are going to know in just the next two weeks whether or not these state legislatures certify their electors and then send the electors to cast their votes for the winner of the popular vote as it currently stands in these different states. And then we head into the Christmas season and then we know how the House will likely vote in January 6th. And I mean, all of that we are going to learn in just the next few days even and over the next week to two weeks. So a lot's coming down the pipeline. We're going to know a lot very soon. The chances of Trump are winning are slim, but it is 2020. Crazier things have happened. He still has passed to victory. On top of all that, if anybody were ever to pull out a crazy victory like this in the 11th hour, it would be Trump. <laughs> he has a bit of a, uh, he has a bit of a, uh, I was going to say a Hail Mary, but I, what is the word I'm looking for? A track record of things like this in the past working out for him, where he faces a great deal of adversity and yet still finds a way through clever strategy or pure luck, or blessings, or whatever it might be, to make his way through the adversity onto the other side. We saw that in 2016. Nobody expected that Trump would win, but he did. In the face of big corporations and media and big tech and Hollywood and everybody standing against him. In the face of Hillary and Obama colluding together in order to spy on the Trump campaign. I mean, all of that took place. And yet, Trump still came out the victor. So he's not someone that I ever advise people count out. And he's even said himself that it's not a good idea for people to bet against him. And I actually think that's a good piece of advice. So there's still a chance. Ultimately, I really want him to continue moving forward, pursuing litigation, and making sure that every stone is 
overturned, that we have checked behind every curtain to make sure, make sure that uh, full investigations and audits have been done or the right questions have been answered. We've got to do that in order to secure confidence in our elections moving forward into the future. This goes far beyond just this 2020 election, which I'll talk about more in a second. But with all that being said, chances are slim, but they're still certainly there. They're diminishing as the days go on, but it's all kind of crunch time now. So Let's get into some of the litigation that's currently before the courts, some of the allegations that are currently in front of these different state legislatures. I want to start in Pennsylvania because this is sort of the big state here. Well, honestly, they're all big states at this point, but he's got to get three of these in order to actually win. Let's start in Pennsylvania. There's currently a case uh, before the Supreme Court. Well, really, the, the court, the Supreme Court is essentially uh, deciding fully whether or not to actually jump back in and take this challenge. And it essentially has to do with the Republican Party of Pennsylvania challenging Bukvar about the absentee ballots received up to three days after November 3rd. So the Republicans are arguing that the court's extension in, in Pennsylvania violates the U.S. Constitution as the decision to extend the deadline belongs to lawmakers, not the courts. So we'll see whether or not the Supreme Court decides to really run with this and what they were to rule. And ultimately, this would affect just the ballots that were accepted after November 3rd up to November 6th. Would that be enough to actually change things or would it lead to a domino effect that could affect other things? Still yet to be seen. The Donald Trump for president versus Bukvar case. This is a big one. This essentially carries a lot of the allegations of equal protection clause violations, poll observers being blocked, uh, major ballot dumps, including a ballot dump overnight of 570,000 votes for Biden and only 3,200 for Trump, which is not only statistically improbable, but arguably it's impossible. So this has to do with a lot of the intricacies, the mismanaged election processes, the shrouded in secrecy election processes of the Pennsylvania election official process, um, or their really the work that they did in the state uh, to ensure a transparent election was just very uh, shoddy and did not uh, did not lead to a an outcome that the American people, especially Pennsylvania, should feel confident in, uh, especially the Pennsylvania state legislature should feel confident in order, in order to move forward with certifying. But the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, the federal court, uh, denied the Trump campaign's request and they essentially threw out the case. So now it's up for the Trump campaign lawyers, Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis, to decide whether or not they're going to fully appeal the decision to the U.S. Supreme Court. They have indicated that they would be doing so, but it's also going to take the U.S. Supreme Court actually taking their case, which is not a done deal. Many people assume, oh, well, they'll just easily go to the Supreme Court and that's where it's all going to get decided. But anybody that really knows the law knows that while the Trump campaign's goal is essentially appeal, appeal, appeal until you get there, there's no guarantee you get there. And it's incredibly difficult to actually get a case in front of the Supreme Court. Now, they have some precedents for the type of things that they'd be arguing. We know that there's some similar language that used in Bush v. Gore, different situation, but similar language. There's some uh, similar historical precedent for what they're trying to argue in front of the court. We'll see if the Supreme Court decides to bite on that. That is yet to be seen. Uh, there's another lawsuit that just got thrown out by Mike Kelly, a congressman in Pennsylvania, versus the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, arguing against mail ba- mail-in ballots, arguing against the constitutionality of mail-in ballots, essentially saying that they're unconstitutional. Uh, the Supreme Pennsylvania Supreme Court essentially dismissed the case, saying that the group of Republicans had filed their challenge too late. So that's Pennsylvania. Let's go to Wisconsin. In Wisconsin, essentially, there was a recount that the Trump campaign spent $3 million on due to a lot of alleged irregularities in the vote in the state. They were worried about these two counties that had very improbable ballot dumps. 
there were some Republican lawsuits that came out that found more than 10,000 Republican ballots that weren't counted, more than 10,000 GOP voters who actually had their ballots requested and filled in by another person, and around 100,000 illegal ballots that were counted anyways. Uh, there was suits that detailed series of alleged illegal actions taken by Wisconsin officials that led to significant numbers of improper votes being counted, such as not enforcing state laws that require voters to present photo ID when requesting an absentee or mail-in ballot. So these two recounts in these two counties that the Trump campaign spent $3 million on were really built to expose where those illegal votes were found. And therefore, once they have those recounts done, which they are now done, and they confirmed a Biden win, quote unquote, uh, the Trump campaign now goes back and files challenges on those recounts and essentially says, okay, now we've got our votes. Now we challenge, we know exactly what we're going after, the amount of votes we're going after, and we'll file suit in that place. So we're awaiting suit in Wisconsin. That's the latest update there. Let's go now to, let's head to Michigan. So in Michigan, Active cases, we've got a case called Johnson versus Benson. This is the Amistad Project announced a lawsuit against Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson asking the state Supreme Court to invalidate the state's election results, arguing that the state and the local officials engaged in unlawful conduct in how they handled the election. The suit claims that Benson's COVID-19 measures by sending unsolicited absentee ballot applications to every household in the state violated election laws and the intent of the Michigan legislature. The Amistad Project is representing a poll challenger and a voter in this suit. Sworn affidavits, again, legal documents. Uh, we will see how this all plays out. Um, this was docketed as filed on November 30th uh, due to the court rules. The plaintiffs are also asking the court to continue their consider their claims urgently. Excuse me. Also, lawyer Sidney Powell filed a lawsuit in a Michigan federal court on behalf of a group of Republicans alleging that massive election fraud and violations to the state election code in the November 3rd election took place. It claims that the fraud took place through a troubling, insidious, and egregious ploy of ballot stuffing, which gave Democratic nominee Joe Biden a lead in the state. The fraud allegedly was rendered invisible through the help of using election software and hardware from Dominion Voting Systems. Uh, plaintiffs in the civil action are six registered Michigan voters and nominees of the Republican Party to the Electoral College. We know the Dominion piece is huge about the ability to alter Dominion votes in their software. And actually, uh, they even have in their manual pretty clear guidelines of how to do that. And the, the safeguards against that are very weak. And Dominion has not been transparent in the way in which they protect themselves against this fraud taking place. So essentially, these different techs have uh, a great deal amount of access to a software system and a voting system that is largely unsecure and many different software developers and tech experts and cybersecurity experts over the past week, two weeks have either filled out affidavits or have testified like in the hearing in Arizona yesterday about the vulnerabilities in the Dominion system. So a lot of the Arizona challenges, Georgia challenges, Michigan challenges related to Dominion have to do with that. So that's, that's really what Michigan centers around. Again, guys, I'm just skimming through these because we could talk for hours and go through all the different affidavits. Uh, I want to now head to Georgia. And in Georgia, we've got some active cases. Currently, we've got Sidney Powell representing a group of Republican plaintiffs seeking to invalidate the election results in Georgia over allegations of massive fraud, in particular ballot stuffing and voter manipulation through the use of Dominion voting system. So essentially, her suit alleges, citing expert analysis, cybersecurity expert analysis, that at least 96,000 votes were illegally counted during the Georgia 2020 general election. Powell filed the suit on behalf of plaintiffs, including Republican Party nominees for the Electoral College and a few other prominent Republicans in the state. Uh, the lawsuit was filed in federal court. Now, again, these are pretty outlandish claims, but they have some cybersecurity experts that have come in and the big challenge with and have actually validated her claims. Now, the problem is 
with these different Dominion claims, it's one thing to prove that these systems are vulnerable to manipulation, to illegal, uh, fraudulent hacking activity taking place. And that's already problem enough. I mean, that's that's something that, again, just reiterates the necessary conversation that we need to have about voter reform in our country. Why on earth are we using these systems that have been proven to manipulate elections illegally in countries like Venezuela? Why on earth are we allowing for our country to use a system that has a past of being used in Venezuela by Chavez? Why are we allowing our our uh, country to use a system for voting that's headquarters are in Toronto in the first place? Why are we doing this? Why don't we look at serious voter reform in our country? That's, again, a conversation for another time. I've talked about this in this show already up until this point. But it's one thing to prove that the systems are are vulnerable to that. It's a whole other thing to prove that they actually happen and provide very concrete evidence for how that happened. Now, the evidence that they brought forth up until this point has been statistical analysis. So showing essentially that through statistical analysis, it's impossible to have the results that we had in these different state elections, especially in places like Michigan, Georgia, and Arizona, without Dominion interference in uh, an illegal manner. So without these algorithms manipulating the vote to essentially weight votes differently, uh, we couldn't receive the same election. That's the claims that they're making. Again, very outlandish claims, but that's the claims that they're making. They've got a lot of smart people that are willing to back this up with statistical analysis, and there are certainly questions that need to be answered. And so Dominion's clearly a flawed system. Therefore, Georgia, Sidney uh, Powell and Lynn Wood have asked hey, please let us have access to these Dominion voting systems. We have to be able to inspect these. Now, finally, we have uh, the, the, the Linwood and Sidney Powell now have access to these voting machines. But the problem is one of the voting machines then goes and disappears and somebody actually takes it because they said they needed a software update. I mean, it's just an absolute mess in Fulton County in Georgia. And so it is imperative that transparency takes place there. This should definitely raise some red flags. Why on earth would some of these election commissions, some of these state officials be so hesitant to allowing a transparent audit of the very systems that have been shown to be compromised in the past? I don't understand that. Anyways, in Georgia, there's another uh, case, Wood versus Raffensperger. The Amistad Project of the Thomas More Society filed a lawsuit on behalf of John Wood, president of the Georgia Voters, or Voters Alliance, asking the court to nullify the state's election results to significant allegations of voter irregularities. Lawsuit alleges that over 150,000 illegal votes were counted, while over 40,000 legal votes were not counted. Illegal votes were ones, that 150,000, where voters voted where they did not reside, were out-of-state residents voting in Georgia, or double votes occurred. Meanwhile, some 20,000 absentee ballots were requested, which were not asked for by the person identified in Georgia's database. So we'll see what happens there. We've got Lynn Word versus Raffensperger, an attorney with Trump's re-election campaign, sued Georgia's Secretary of State and election officials in a bid to stop the certification of election results, claiming that the election results unconstitutionally changed by state officials could have invalidated absentee ballots cast in the 2020 election. Uh, so the appeals court actually granted Wood's motion for an expedited review of the case. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. That's actually somewhat promising there. And now we know even Secretary of State Raffensperger, who has been very reluctant reluctant to pursue any investigations on potential voter fraud, has now said that there's actually 250 claims that he's calling for an investigation into. So big moves there. Georgia's election was, an, was a complete mess, and it can never happen again. 
um, the way that it happened. Otherwise, Georgians will not feel confident in their elections. And the really upsetting part and the confusing part in all of this is that Georgia essentially has allowed for the same destructive things that led to breakdowns in their vote taking place in this election. They've allowed for the same things to take place in their runoffs taking place in early January. So uh, really praying for some wisdom to rise up and some for some common sense related to how we can make sure that our elections are secure as possible. But Georgia, there's definitely still a lot happening, and the president has apparently planned a rally for in Georgia for this coming Saturday, so it'll be interesting to see how all of that plays out, but apparently he feels pretty confident in their cases in Georgia, but in order for Georgia to actually work for the Trump campaign, the state legislature, the governor, they've got to be a little bit more workable because at the moment they're not. They've been very hesitant to accommodating the Trump campaign on any of these requests, so we'll see what happens there. In Nevada, we know that there was a major breakthrough for transparency last night. A judge in Nevada has ordered Clark County officials to allow an inspection of the elections equipment and sealed containers used in the 2020 election by 1 p.m. today. So big update there out of Nevada. Hopefully that leads to a lot of questions being answered. Finally, in Arizona, like I mentioned, uh, there was actually a cybersecurity expert that came out and said that in a nutshell, these Dominion voting systems are not what you've been told. If you've been told anything, they said that they are connected to the internet. There's no transparency of how the voter information is processed, moved, and stored. And as a matter of fact, these companies have refused to allow any type of inspection into their code, and they always decry it's our IP, it's our IP protection. Um, He said that the Dominion Suite user manual is about an inch and a half thick, and his team went back through the user manual and looked at all the instances where in the user manual it tells operators to connect the Ethernet cords to the router, and the systems are connected to the Internet. He's a cybersecurity expert and retired Army colonel. His name was Philip Waldron. Uh, And their teams actually looked at spirographs on the Dominion network on Election Day and showed the increased web traffic, Internet traffic on Election Day for Dominion servers, and found it all very problematic. So again, whether or not that's true... The Arizona lawmakers, clearly a chunk of them felt like it was compelling enough, and they called for a resolution to hold back the Electoral College votes. Arizona State Rep. Mark Fincham told reporters during the November 30th hearing that they hope to have a resolution within the next 24 to 48 hours. So we'll see what happens in Arizona. Now, again, it's going to take a lot more for it actually to change the results in that state and for the state legislature to not feel confident putting forward electors for Biden even though that's where the vote currently stands. So we'll see what takes place there. Now, though I just read out a bunch of lawsuits that are currently being challenged in the courts, I also read out a few pieces of affidavits, allegations that were read in front of state legislatures. Now, that's different because in front of the courts is one thing. Getting an evidentiary hearing on some of this stuff in short notice is very tough. And a lot of people have asked me, you know, Michael, how do you actually see this going? What is the Trump campaign's legal strategy here? Are they trying to fight in the courts and just get up to the Supreme Court and hope that, you know, one Supreme Court ruling will change everything for them and it'll lead to a stack of dominoes falling over and Pennsylvania will go and then Arizona will go and then Georgia will go? Maybe, but that's, that's really a stretch. What I see them actually doing is getting in front of as many state legislatures as possible in these hearings, this is something you've seen them really implement over the last week, and trying to convince enough of these state legislatures that there are still too many questions that need answered for these legislatures to be able to feel confident in casting their votes for Biden, even though that's where the current vote totals stand. So Alan Dershowitz actually last week in an interview, who's a really famous lawyer, um, he's actually on the left, but he defended Trump in his impeachment. He actually came out and said that he believes that this is Trump's strategy to essentially pull electoral votes away from Vice President, former Vice President Joe Biden, instead of trying to get to 270 himself. 
So Alan Dershowitz came out and said, this is a quote, he said, the clock is a double-edged sword in this election because if they don't have enough time, but if they can put forward a sufficiently strong case, then they may be able to get some Republican secretaries of states or legislatures to say, look, we just don't have enough time to certify these electors. And if they can bring down the number of electors, 35 to 37, from the 305, 306 that Biden currently has and bring it down to 267 or 268, then the election goes to the House where the Republicans would win. So to get a little more in the weeds, here's how this could technically go. Essentially, the Trump campaign would seek to raise enough questions and show enough evidence of fraud to where the different state legislatures, especially Republican legislatures like in Pennsylvania or like in Arizona would say, you know what, we can't do it. We do not feel confident enough in certifying this vote fully through casting our electors for Biden. So we're either going to do one of two things. We're either just going to challenge this in court and we're going to basically go back and forth with suits with the Democrats and just make this a big invalidated mess, essentially leading to our state being completely thrown out of the process. Neither candidate gets the electoral votes or do we cast our elector electoral votes for uh, Trump, if we can cast a certain number of them, uh, that it actually takes electoral votes away from Biden, even though the vote currently stands for Biden, that's called being a faithless elector. That can certainly happen as well. Whatever would uh, it would take in some of those states with these Republican legislatures to where they essentially say, guys, we, we don't feel confident. There's too many questions that still need to be answered. If we were to move forward with this now, we would essentially be certifying a broken, messed up election and again, they've already done a certification preliminarily, but the next step is the electors. And that's really where the vote on the state's part gets fully certified because then they send that off to the House. So essentially, these states would be saying, we still need the next three weeks for more investigations to be done, more to be looked into. So we're going to kick it off to the House on the 6th. We're not going to feel comfortable feeling confident in our electoral votes being cast. If enough states can do that to keep Biden from getting 270 electoral votes, it kicks it to the House in January, where then the House in January 6th has the ability to vote. That's a, a contingent election is what's that, what's that, what that's called, excuse me. And you may say, well, Michael, I thought that the House was in Democrat hands at the moment. So if it went to the House, wouldn't the House vote Democrat and vote for Biden? Well, the way that this works in, in a contingent election is a little different. According to the 12th Amendment, and I know this is a lot, guys, but uh, I apologize. It's very, it's very in-depth, but it's important because the framers were really intentional when they set this up in the event that a contested election were to come to the surface. And this could end up happening. So on January 6th, if that takes place, what happens is each state is given one vote. So there's 50 votes in total, and the vote is is uh, delegated depending upon who has the majority of seats in that actual state in the House. So currently, the Republicans hold the majority of states where there's more Republicans in that state by House, and therefore they would have the majority votes and be able to actually vote uh, for Donald Trump if it ended up happening that way. It's a very confusing process how the contingent election works. We'll talk about this more as we get closer. If we come to it, if uh, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it, if it ends up going there, we are going to be in for a very interesting month if that takes place. So more on that to come, but that's definitely still a possibility. And I think that's the route that the Republicans at this point are actually trying to go. And in fact, this was confirmed two days ago, Rudy Giuliani uh, there was a report that came out said that his team is actually looking past the election lawsuits and they're going to lobby state houses. That's exactly what they've done, like I mentioned. So I'll read you this little report here. The former New York City mayor said they are lobbying state legislatures in tandem with their lawsuits because they don't have a lot of time. 
We're doing both with equal speed and enthusiasm and taking advantage of which one gives us the hearing the quickest and which one will work fastest for us, said Giuliani on the program, Newsmax. Because we don't have a lot of time. We've got a lot of evidence. We don't have a lot of time. And we're facing a major censorship, so it's very hard to get this information out to the public. With all that being said, the Supreme Court possibility is still definitely there. The faithless electors and getting electors to vote for Trump enough to get him to 270 is virtually impossible. But the chance of getting enough votes cast away from Biden to where they could push this election to the House, and it's a contingent election, absolutely possible. Uh, The Constitution was built to accommodate such a measure. It would not be unconstitutional. It would be constitutional for that to take place. We'll see what happens there. Uh, There is certainly, there are certainly legislatures in states like Pennsylvania, in states like uh, Georgia and Arizona that have indicated that they would be interested in going this way, but they've got to have enough legislatures in these different states to actually make that a viable path. That's the route I see them going, though. We'll keep up to date with this. We'll keep checking in. The last thing I want to touch on, though, related to the election before we end the episode here, something that I'm really bummed about, honestly, is that if we had a real media institution in the United States, if our industry of journalism was truly robust and doing what it was designed to do, we would have, journalists would be having a heyday right now trying to figure out all of the intricacies of this election, the anomalies of this election. They'd be investigating every single crack and crevice and why on earth did this happen the way that it happened? There are so many anomalies in this election that don't make any sense. And I'm a really big political science guy. I love the data and the numbers and jumping into voter trends. And I like bellwether counties and different predictive markers to see how people will vote. I think all of that's really interesting. And political scientists in our country that aren't biased also think that's interesting and they're digging into this election. But most of the political scientists in our country, most of the investigative journalists are very left-leaning. So essentially, they're not wanting to touch this election. They're not wanting to look into it. They're not wanting to look into the anomalies. This has been the weirdest election of the last hundred years. And if this election actually went to Biden and there was not fraud that took place, if that actually happened, if Biden really won this thing fair and square, this is the most statistically unnatural and unnormal election in American history, without a doubt. So I want to read you this report by Patrick Basham out of The Spectator. And the title was Reasons Why the 2020 Presidential Election is Deeply Puzzling. And I think this so well articulates some of the massive anomalies that do not make any sense regarding this election. And if we had real journalists in their country, in this country, they would be on CNN, on New York Times, on ABC, on Fox, trying to dig into this and trying to get to the bottom of how on earth Joe Biden actually would have managed to get 80 million votes if this thing was not fraudulent. So I want to get into some of these anomalies. So let's consider some facts. I'm just going to go through some of the different things that's mentioned. I'm going to kind of paraphrase and give my own thoughts on a lot of it. And we'll end the episode with this. So first, President Trump received more votes than any previous incumbent seeking re-election. He got 11 million more votes than in 2016, the third largest rise in support ever for an incumbent. So by way of comparison, Obama was comfortably re-elected in 2012 with 3.5 million fewer votes than he received in 2008. Trump's vote increased so much because according to exit polls, he performed far better with many key demographic groups. 95% of Republicans voted for him. He did extraordinarily well with rural male working class whites, especially in areas like Ohio, which only makes Wisconsin and Michigan even more confusing because they normally vote together. He earned the highest share of all minority votes for Republicans since 1960. 
Trump grew his support among black voters by 50% over 2016. Nationally, Joe Biden's black support fell well below 90%, the level below which Democratic uh, presidential candidates usually lose. Trump increased his share of the national Hispanic vote to 35%. With 60% or less of the national Hispanic vote, it's mathematically impossible for a Democratic presidential candidate to win Florida, Arizona, Nevada, and New Mexico, for the most part. Bellwether states swung further in Trump's direction than in 2016, meaning states that are very predictive, that can uh, almost 100% accurately predict how the election will go if enough of them vote a certain way. Florida, Ohio, and Iowa each defied America's media polls with huge wins for Trump. Since 1852, only Richard Nixon has lost the Electoral College after winning this trio of states. And that 1960 defeat to JFK is still the subject of great suspicion, by the way. So that was another election that's gone down in history as uh, deeply suspicious. Midwestern states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin always swing in the same direction as Ohio and Iowa, their regional peers. Ohio likewise swings with Florida. Current tallies show that outside of a few cities, the Rust Belt swung in Trump's direction. Yet Biden leads in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin because of an apparent avalanche of black votes in Detroit, Philadelphia, and Milwaukee, three cities where there are a lot of allegations and affidavits of fraud. Biden's winning, quote-unquote, margin was derived almost entirely from such voters in these cities, as coincidentally, his black vote spiked only in exactly the locations necessary to secure victory. So everywhere else he underperformed, except in these few spots that he needed to secure victory, which also happened to be the spots where the highest allegations of voter fraud took place. He did not receive comparable levels of support among comparable demographic groups in comparable states, which is highly unusual. We're told that Biden won more votes nationally than any presidential candidate in history, but he won a record low of 17% of counties. He only won 524 counties, as opposed to the 873 counties Obama won in 2008. Yet, Biden somehow outdid Obama in total votes. Makes no sense. Victorious presidential candidates, especially challengers, usually have down-ballot coattails. Biden did not. Republicans crushed the down-ballot races. They held the Senate. They enjoyed a red wave in the House where they gained a large number of seats while winning all 27 of the toss-up contests, which the polls had them losing most of them. Trump's party did not lose a single state legislature seat and actually made gains at the state level. Another anomaly is found in the comparison between the polls and non-polling metrics. So party registration trends, the ca uh, candidates' respective primary votes, candidate enthusiasm, social media followings, broadcast and digital media ratings, online searches, the number of small donors, and the number of individuals betting on each candidate strongly favored Trump. Late on election night, with Trump comfortably ahead, many swing states stopped counting ballots, which was crazy. In most cases, observers were then removed from the counting facilities because they thought that the ballot counting had stopped. And then counting generally continued without the observers present. So deeply problematic, very suspicious. We know that there was the faulty and fake water leak in Georgia that kicked observers out. And it indeed was not a water leak at all. It's apparently being reported right now that it was actually just a urinal leak and then Counters kept counting. Statistically abnormal vote counts were the new normal when counting resumed. They were unusually large in size, hundreds of thousands, and had an unusually high 90% or above Biden to Trump ratio. Also improbable, potentially impossible. Late arriving ballots were counted. In Pennsylvania, 23,000 absentee ballots have impossible postal return dates, and another 86,000 have extra such extraordinary return dates they raise serious questions. The failure to match signatures on mail-in ballots is problematic. The destruction of mail-in ballot envelopes, which must contain signatures, problematic. Historically low absentee ballot rejection rates, despite the massive expansion of mail-in voting. Biden's narrow margin, so, no so narrow that political 
analyst Robert Barnes observed and said, if the states simply impose the same absentee ballot rejection rate as recent cycles, then Trump wins the election. So essentially, they did not reject the rates due to errors with the absentee ballots at all near past elections, which suggests that a lot of these states overlooked issues on the ballots that may have been favoring Biden. Missing votes in Delaware County, Pennsylvania, 50,000 votes held on 47 USB cards are missing. That was alleged the other day in the hearing. Crazy stuff there that we still don't have a clear, concrete answer for. Non-resident voters. So Matt Brainerd's Voter Integrity Project, which is the guy I mentioned uh, that the FBI is actually starting to uh, seek his assistance on, they're collaborating on an investigation, estimates that 20,312 people who no longer met residency requirements cast ballots in Georgia. Biden's margin is 12,670 votes in Georgia. Serious chain of custody breakdowns are problematic. So invalid residential addresses, record numbers of dead people voting, ballots in pristine condition without creases. That is, they had not been mailed in envelopes as required by law. Statistical anomalies took place. So in Georgia, Biden overtook Trump with 89% of the votes counted. For the next 53 batches of votes counted, Biden led Trump by the exact same 50.05 to 49.95% margin in every single batch. So imagine this. That's such a statistical anomaly. It's, it's, it's hard to fathom that it would even be possible. 80% of the votes counted, 89%, excuse me, Biden overtakes Trump, and the next 53 batches of votes that were counted, Biden led Trump in those batches of votes by the exact same decimal point percentage margin in every single batch. And it's particularly perplexing that all statistical anomalies and tabulation abnormalities were in Biden's favor. And whether the cause was simple human error or nefarious activity or a combination, you know, ignorance and incompetence, whatever it was, clearly something peculiar happened. And there may be answers for these, but nobody's bothering to even ask. Nobody's bothering to try to answer these. The media is wanting to stay quiet. You would think that if the media was really confident in Biden's victory, wouldn't they be asking right now, Biden, how did you do it? You just pulled off the most impressive win in U.S. electoral history, and you barely went outside for the three months before the election. How on earth did you do it? And you cannot just say that people hated Trump so much. Trump received millions more votes than he did even in 2016. That's not, that's not a statement that bears true at all. It would make sense if Trump lost a lot more support than he did in 2016, but he overwhelmingly gained it. So Biden, how did you do it? How did you pull off this victory? But the media is not bothering to ask. Why? Well, we don't know. We can't judge motives, but we can say that generally when people are afraid to touch the conversation, it's because they're afraid they, of what they might find. I think we need a journalist institution in the United States, an industry, excuse me, uh, full of journalists that are willing to pursue the truth, even if it leads to an outcome that they don't expect or maybe don't prefer. Again, the, the goal for me in all of this is that truth would be revealed for the sake of truth being revealed. If it leads to a Trump victory, great. If it doesn't, great. At least we know what took place. We have transparent elections so that in the future we can ensure the integrity of all elections moving forward. I so strongly desire a day when our media institutions do what they were designed to do, which was report the truth, investigate where investigations are needed so that Americans can have confidence in the systems that we are asked to put trust in daily. So I'm going to leave that episode there. I hope and pray that this was a helpful resource for you. As always, it's been such an honor to speak with you today. I know we covered a lot of ground. I'm so looking forward to speaking with you all again tomorrow. I will be releasing a short video update, so make sure you're tuning in for that. You can watch that on Instagram or on Facebook or on YouTube, or you can listen to it in audio-only format wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. So we're going to do that. Also, 
As always, if you enjoyed the show, please share with your community. Please subscribe to the show on Apple or Spotify, wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. If you would feel led to donate, if that's something you'd like to do, that helps the show grow tremendously. My desire is that I'd be able to produce more and more content for your enjoyment moving into the future, doing this on more and more of a full-time capacity. Your donations make that possible, so thank you so much for that. As always, please leave me a positive review on Apple if you have not already. That helps the show grow tremendously as well. With all of that being said, I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. And this has been another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert. <laughs>